Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Welcome to a National Committee on U.S.-China Relations interview. I'm James O'Brien. Today, we will discuss U.S.-China people-to-people academic and professional exchanges. In honor of the 50th anniversary of ping-pong diplomacy and recognizing the importance of people-to-people exchange for the National Committee's work, the Committee has embarked on a year of programming related to -to people-to-people exchange. We began with a program in April on the 50th anniversary of the U.S. ping-pong team's 1971 visit to China, and we are continuing with interviews of Committee alumni. In this interview, we will have the opportunity to discuss the Peace Corps and Fulbright programs, as well as Schwarzman and our Public Intellectuals program. We are fortunate to be joined by Lenora Chu and Willie Thompson. Lenora Chu is a Public Intellectuals program fellow, a journalist, and author of the award-winning Little Soldiers, a book about China's education system. She is now based in Berlin, where she covers Europe for the Christian Science Monitor. Willie Thompson was born in Selma, Alabama, and grew up in Griffin, Georgia. Willie worked as a Fulbright program English teaching assistant in Taichung, Taiwan. Upon finishing his service, Willie worked as an associate consultant for the Bridgespan Group. He took a leave of absence from Bridgespan to join the third cohort of Schwarzman Scholars. Willie has since returned to Bridgespan, where he works on impact investing, philanthropic prizes, and workforce development. To start with, I'd like to first hear from Lenora and Willie um, on the question of how you both have been personally affected by exchange. You know, I, I would say I arrived in China as a private citizen, but then I eventually got back into journalism work. And I would say that the things that was most valuable to me was, you know, at the time I was writing about education, I could walk onto any university in Shanghai and start talking to students. And it was a conversation and interaction pretty much without fear or paranoia. And I would say by the end of my stay, I arrived in 2010. And by the end, I left um, right before 2020. So I left in 2019, summer of. So over nearly 10 years, that ability to do that had changed almost completely 180% or 180 degrees. And 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 it's a huge loss. Um, Just one very quick example you know, one of the students that I ended up getting to know over a period of eight years, you know, he would tell me things that he read about in the news, and then he would tell me his private thoughts about it. And I think that dichotomy, the space between the public persona and the private space um, gets lost when we don't have those kinds of conversations. Very clarifying example, very clear um, sense for how um, exchanges have changed as the environment in China has changed politically. Um, Willie, what are your thoughts? When I initially went to China, which was the the, the summer of 2013, I was in I was in Shanghai, Xi'an, uh, and I think most people were like, "Oh, you're going to China? Like, why?" Um, and you know, they're like, "Oh, if you go there, get, you know, <laughs> you know, fi- fi- find a, find me some fake purses, or like, fi- like, 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 give me, you know, give me some souvenirs and bring it with you." So like, very, very much so, just like, "Oh, it's interesting. Like, don't really know why you're going there." Um, and I think in a lot of ways, that was sort of my, my interest into Chinese and studying Chinese because uh, I minored in Chinese at, at Morehouse. And it was really just a, 
it was an experience of exploration. I did not know a person who looked like me who spoke Mandarin until I got to Morehouse and saw a bunch of African-American men speaking Mandarin. I was like, yeah, that's crazy. Um, I, you know, uh, I want to like try to do that. And so I think that was sort of like the, the initial sort of experience I had. But as I continued to go to China in subsequent years, I think um, there were differing perspectives from the people I engaged with back at home, um, especially when um, I, you know, while, when I was in Taiwan teaching English and there were some disputes going on uh, internationally with, with uh, the South China Sea, for example, and with, and with North Korea and everything. And, like my parents would be like, are you like, are you okay? Like, are things safe? Like, should you be going back to China? I'm like, yeah, like, yes, like, I should, like, it is fine. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm totally safe. Uh, and so I think in some ways, like my experience of going to China has like informed like a lot of people in my community's perspectives on like, what, like, what is China? Like, um, because I think, especially coming into 20, the 2016 election and everything, people were like, really like asking all these questions about China in my own community. And I think part of it was uh, driven by the fact they knew someone who'd been there and had traveled there. Um, and I think the biggest change in terms of my experience in China, between the first time I went there and like the last time was like, obviously like, I feel like if you go to China one year and you come back like two or three years later, like you're probably, like you're going to a completely different place, <laughs> which sort of just speaks like the the rapid innovation that happens. Like I was using cash money the first two times I went to China when I was in Beijing with the Schwarzman Scholars. I called Bank of America, said, "Can you give me like some some RMB and uh, you know about a hundred dollars in RMB so I can just have some money when I get there?" And I got there and they're like, "What are you what are you doing with that cash? Like use WeChat." <laughs> so. Um, so I think like those are a couple of examples of how um, the dynamic has changed since I first engaged uh, um, with the Chinese language, the culture, and the uh, Chinese people. That's also a wonderful answer. Thank you so much, Willie. Um, I think the uh, it's deeply resonant resonant to recognize how um, views in in America have changed and how experiences in China um, can help um, can help our communities back home. When, when, talking with relatives and friends to, um, to share some insight on what we've experienced. Um, so next for this next question, I'd like to hear first from Willie, then Lenora. Um, do you think that professional and educational exchanges between the US and China are important? If so, why? And the uh, second part of this question is in the context of competition between the US and China, what do you think the Chinese and American publics uh, stand to gain from exchange programs? To, so to elaborate a bit on um, our answers to the first question. For sure. Yeah. So I appreciate that question. So I think the answer is yes. I think they are important um, on a number of dimensions. One, I think it's really about like gaining a perspective that's outside of your own. I think, you know, uh, as, as someone who's African-American, you know, Du Bois talks about this notion of like of, of, of having a double consciousness. And I think my experience going to a place like China and, and being a teacher in Taiwan, um, have like taught me more about like what it means to have like a global perspective and so like there's even like you call it, like a triple consciousness of like you know when I read things or when I see things I'm no longer thinking about it as a as a as a, as a you know a black man from the deep south I'm also thinking about it as someone who's from the deep south who's had experiences as colleagues as classmates as friends from other parts of the world and so I think that like a part of that is just like ingrained and inherent in in, in some of these exchanges um and then I also think that I'm able to like view an issue very differently because I know people who either are affected by it or people who have like a close who are, who are in proximity to it. The notion of competition, I think is, I think is, I think it is good to have healthy competition. I think that spurs innovation. Um, 
right? Like we're in the middle of the NBA playoffs, right? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, at, you know, competition can bring the best out of people. And I also think it's important for countries because at some point, like they're just things that no one country can solve for and you need multilateral and bilateral like relationships to make happen. Like climate change is clearly one of those. And so I think the degree to which there are exchange programs, exchange opportunities that exist between multiple countries, I think you sort of have the bedrock and the foundation to at least have the kinds of discussions and relationships, you know, the quantity that you need to like actually like make really good progress on, on, on issues that are just like insurmountable for any particular, um, for any particular country. Um, I think there is something that like exchange is like a haven for like the sanctity of the human experience, I think, right? I think like you're able to truly like relate to people in a way that is very different because you've been able to, you know, eat, um, work and like, just like coexist with them, so. And I'm, I'm in agreement. Um, you know, the work that I've been doing on education, you know, education and teaching are cultural activities. And I always had thought that culture is an explainer for nearly everything. Like if you think about what happens in the trade arena, you know, governmental relations, um, business and finance, even the way, you know, two executives, one from China and the US would relate to each other in a room when they're trying to forge a deal over something, all of that is impacted by culture. And how do you learn about culture from a research study or from a book? You actually have to go there. You need to talk to Chinese people. You need to absorb, you know, what makes them tick. And, and that's why I think the people, the people exchanges are so important because it informs literally everything else, right? And the other reason it's important is because you have a deterioration of governmental relations. And so even, you know, institutional exchanges. So really what's left is the people, the people. And now that is obviously, you know, I think it's somewhat in jeopardy as well. So I think we're entering an, an era where there's not going to be a lot of information exchanged. And as far as competitive advantage, I have very specific thoughts about this. Um, a few years ago when I was, you know, giving a lot of book talks about education, I actually looked at the numbers um, at any given time, you know, the classic people pe to people exchanges in education, right? University students coming over, others going over there. Um, and at any given time, um, there were like 3 million Chinese students studying in America, 3 million. So that's a lot of Chinese understanding American culture, speaking English, learning about our governmental systems and going back with that knowledge. You know, whether they stay or go, they have this knowledge. Now the reverse pipeline, how fat was that? It was actually 15,000. So, you know, in the US, 3 million at any given time. In China, only 15,000 Americans at any given time. And for sure that number is much, much smaller now. So I think that as far as competitive advantage, you have many more Chinese who understand our systems and our culture than the reverse. And I think the number is even gonna get smaller on the American side. So how can we make good decisions about China if we don't really understand what's going on. And that's what I worry about. Um, you know, there's an anecdote I like to tell. I was part of this sort of history club uh, when I was in Shanghai, you know, towards the end, we would get together every month and talk about a different topic. And there was one very chatty Chinese lawyer who was uh, head of a British firm there. And he said, Lenora, you always think that you'll, you'll be sitting at a meeting and you think you're part of the conversation, you know, me as an American, but there's always going to be a meeting after the meeting. And not only that, where you're not part of it, and not only that, there's all these communications that go on that are not verbal. 
And if you don't understand those verbal communications, you're really just not part of the conversation. And that's what I mean. It's like having those people to people interactions. That's the only way you understand how the Chinese communicate. And um, I, I worry that a lot of that will be lost in the coming years. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Lenora. Really fantastic answer as well. Um, wanted to get a sense for whether you all think that there are downsides to exchanges. And if so, what might those, um, what might be some examples of those downsides? <laughs> well, the classic one is how, you know, the US State Department doesn't allow its diplomats to stay longer than say two to three years in any given posting, right? You don't wanna to get too familiar. <laughs> um, you don't wanna to get too soft. I think there's some validity in that, you know, other than that, I, I mean, if, you know, it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to advance the government, you know, interests of the US government, then, you know, perhaps too much um, people to people exchange, you know, could be detrimental. And, and you definitely see the Chinese feeling that way because um, as part of the wonderful public intellectuals program that the national committee puts on one of our very last trips to China, this is in January, 2020, right before everything started shutting down, we were able to meet with diplomats in US diplomats in Hong Kong. Did we go to Beijing as well? And they have no access anymore. You know, it used to be that the consul general or his deputies could go to, you know, a university in Chengdu and just go meet with people. They, they can't do that anymore. The Chinese government has basically deemed that it's not allowable for them to have these people, people exchanges. So the Chinese government is finding these kinds of things uh, for whatever reason, not furthering their interests. I don't think there are many other downsides, to be honest. Um, you know, but but you're right, it is the context. You know, when people, when Chinese citizens abroad are, have the potential to be accused of being agents of their own government, you know, that damages people to people. So, so maybe, you know, I think we're in a time where we're trying to figure out where the pendulum is going to land and, and it's very uncomfortable for everyone. I would say there are two points that I would say in terms of the downsides on exchange, I think one is sort of like meta. Um, and then the second is more sort of just a function of like my experiences um, being abroad. And so I think when it comes to exchange, I think in, in a lot of ways, it actually is a privileged activity. Like, I don't know if I go to China, if I don't go to, if I don't go to college um, and have the opportunity to like get a scholarship to go. And so I do think in some ways, like there is a level of privilege in like interwoven into like exchange experiences, which I think it can be a downside because of the privilege that people have to have the opportunities to do, to travel and, and see some of these countries. I think at times that means they're less likely and in times like less willing to be open-minded to learn from other people. Um, and so I'm always just like wondering about to what degree, if any, is entitlement sort of like becoming a norm for for becoming sort of a norm for people who continue to have like experiences with exchange. I like to think that's not the case in most instances, but I mean, I've had experiences with people who sort of, who, who sort of like embody the notion that like doing exchange is a badge of like how learned you are as a person and how like much stature you have in the world. So the second is I think meta like, like exchange, right? We're talking about exchange and that can feel very transactional. Um, and I think in some ways we can, we can be, we can have experiences with exchange um, that are like purely like, I need to get something from a person or from a thing. And that is why I'm building, that's the basis upon which I'm building this relationship. And I think what's more, what's more important for me personally is building lasting relationships and having something that's more holistic. And so it's, to me, it's, 
you know, maybe this is just semantics to some degree, but I do think there's value in transitioning from exchange to something like accompaniment. Like, what does it look like to truly like, grow and learn from people as we as we continue to live our lives and, and grow as professionals, as, as, you know, parents, aunts, uncles, you know, members of communities. Uh, I think that is something that has not always felt apparent in my exchange experiences. Um, and just to give one example, right? Like I, I taught in Taiwan and you could argue that like my, my teaching first to third graders English, to, like, to what degree that actually improved their English speaking, probably marginal at best, right? Like, like one, like 10 months of me being there is probably not gonna make a world of difference in terms of their ability to speak the language. In that way, like the, you know, the exchange might not be as readily like a plus, but sort of thinking about Fulbright's mission of like a little, you know, a world with a little more knowledge and a little less conflict, I think there is um, value in having someone from a context that's different than your own and continuing to have that exposure when I was in Taiwan, as I was sort of like thinking about how, like how, how, how helpful am I actually in, in this entire equation um, for the purposes of exchange? And I found that the cultural component actually is like quite valuable. You know, the linguistic part is sort of just like a vehicle in which like that culture is exchanged, which, you know, to me is fine. But I think it was at least valuable for me to ask that question and to question that assumption. Fantastic answers, Willie, and very nuanced points. Um, for the next question, I wanted to hear first from Willie, then Lenora about the um, cultural challenges, um, but what challenges culturally do people uh, potentially face in, in exchange? I think the, the most clear one, the most clear sort of uh, difficulty is like culture shock, right? Like I think, so, and, and that, can, that can happen at a multitude of levels. For example, for me, when I first, the first time I went to China, it was getting used to like going to a restaurant and not like ordering stuff for me. It's like, oh, we have to order stuff for the table. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I'm sort of like, all right, I want the, you know, I want the gula roll, I want the, I want the chow fun, I want like this. It's like, oh wait, like, oh, like what, what does everybody else want? Okay, cool, let's all like make a decision. And I remember like the third or fourth time that happened, I was like, oh, that's actually kind of cool. Um, so I think like it, it exists like at like those like very like day-to-day -day levels, I think. And then I also think it, it, um, it sort of presents challenges and, and just being able to um, understand like the nuances of, of a person of, of a person's life. I remember talking to my coordinator in Taiwan about uh, we had this like huge dinner. Uh, I think towards like the, the middle of the year, and she told us like you know like her mother never told her that she loved her. And like I remember like all the all the you know mostly Americans like, oh my gosh, that's like so like it's heartening. Like how and then you know like but then she started to like just explain some of the cultural dynamics, and you're like oh like you know I. I get that and like I think that there's just like ways in which like it is it is harder to um to like re like relate if you're not sort of like attuned to the um to the cultural nuances of people's lived experience and so in addition to just like navigating like saying no but like doing it indirectly like I I'm not I'm not great at that which led to like a really long hot pot dinner one time but that's the story for another time <laughs> well Willie's stories are bringing back lots of stories for me as well um I think I really had to get used to letting, like I, I have family in China, so in some, but I'm American. So in some ways it's worse because I sort of have a glimpse of the culture, but it's on steroids in China, right? We're in the motherland. But, you know, whenever I was in Shanghai and having, you know, dinner with relatives, just having like the oldest male relative, like what order my food, like always ordered food for everyone too. I'm like, no, but I really wanted the fish, but okay, it didn't get ordered. You know, that was a really hard thing because you know, growing up in Texas, my dad, you know, he had two very vocal daughters and we were able to sort of bend the culture to how we saw fit. 
but that didn't happen in China. And I, and I think that the, the cultural rituals, I mean, there's just so much ritual there and it's really exhausting, right? Like when to give a gift, how to give it, you know, do you give it with two hands, a business card with two hands and it's got to have all your titles on it. You know, all these things that you just don't know unless someone's told you, you know, or you know to do it. And I remember, I can't, I will tell the story. It's really embarrassing, but you know, my great uncle lost his mother when I, when we were actually living in Shanghai. And so I was representing the American shoes and my dad said, okay, just prepare this amount of money and give it to him. You know, you're supposed to give money at a funeral. And I'd never <laughs> had the experience of preparing money to give to a Chinese person. Cause my dad always did that in America, but here I was representing the family and I put it in a home bow. So I show up at the funeral and I give this wad of cash in a red envelope. And literally I'll never forget you're, it's not supposed, you're, it's not a cause for celebration, right? You're not supposed to give anything in a red envelope unless it's like, you know, a joyful occasion. And when my uncle took, like he, he took it, he first he went, <gasps> and then he, he took it so fast and like hit it somewhere. I was just mortified. And I emailed my dad later. He's like, you, you, you put it in a home out? Like, what are you doing? You know, it's just all these things that, you know, it just is so embarrassing if you don't know, because it, it you know, and also there's a, you're supposed to step around the fire after the funeral, you're supposed to step around the fire. I think I stepped over it. I don't even know, but you know, I, and I think the Chinese also find it exhausting too. And I think the younger generation is, is changing, you know, they're not attaching so much significance to some of these things, but um, I would say, just be careful and ask a lot of questions. <laughs> That's very good advice, Lenora. Uh, thank you both for excellent answers. Um, for the uh, next question um, about how have U.S.-China ex exchanges contributed to your views of the U.S. and China? Um, how have those experiences been clarifying for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll go back to one of the first things I said, which was, you know, the, one of the chapters in my book is about political education and, you know, the word communist is really loaded, you know, especially if you're American, right? Um, and one of the characters that I got to know really well, he was showing me all of the essays he wrote to get in, you know, to become inducted into the Communist Youth League. And it was, you know, walking down the red road, eyes straight ahead, marching like a good soldier. And then, I would look at him and say, you wrote this? He's like, yeah, I had to write this. And we'd sort of joke about it. And he'd tell me how he really felt about what he was writing. And, and I just think that um, without those conversations that happened on a person to person level, I don't think I would have understood, again, the difference between the public and the private space of, of the Chinese. And I think a lot of Americans who don't have a lot of experience with the Chinese, it's so easy to say, oh gosh, they're all, yeah. It, you know, they're, they're all, you know, they're all communists. They don't, they're brainwashed. They don't have a thought, an individual thought of their own. And I see that narrative a lot. You know, when I'm out there talking about education, people will say, well, there's no creativity. They can do math, but at least, you know, we in America, we do creativity really well. But again, have they ever actually talked? Do they even know what creativity means? You know, what's the definition of creativity? Have they ever talked to a Chinese person about their views of, on creativity and the creative process? You know, no, the answer is usually no. So I think that having conversations with real Chinese people as an American really helps fill in this really valuable context. And it makes it much harder just to go to the easy narrative that's being, you know, it's pervasive in media um, in DC, sometimes for good reason, but it just provides that valuable texture that you wouldn't have otherwise.
is there anything else that you wanted to share, Lenora, or a question that you had for Willie specifically about his experiences? Yeah, actually, I do. Just a very quick sort of anecdote about being Chinese American. You know, my Shanghai cousins, you know, they're exactly my age, and they also have two kids. At one point, I think I messed up something. I forgot the word for some obscure Chinese holiday. And he sort of laughed hysterically and he looked at me. He's like, ha ha ha, you don't fit anywhere. Neither Ch China doesn't want you and neither does America. <laughs> it was just like so funny to him that like I would come back to Shanghai and I would speak Chinese that was less than perfect. It just didn't make sense to him. And I was just wondering if like any interesting, if you know, whether people, you know, had funny questions for you or treated you strangely and you know. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have had moments where, um, where you know, uh, people have assumed. I'll probably give three examples, three quick examples. So, as James mentioned, I went to Morehouse College. It is an all-male African-American historically black college uh, in in Atlanta. So the first time I went to China, it was like fifteen, it was fifteen, fifteen black men were uh, walking down the bun in Shanghai, and they literally thought we were like an, like they thought we were an NBA basketball team. Like we got to the end of the, the bun, got to like this pavilion where you're like next to the river. And I kid you not, we spent an hour and a half taking photos with people who thought we were like, who thought they thought I was like Nate Robinson. Um, they thought like the 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 ball guy in our group was Michael Jordan. Uh, and they were just and and I think like the moment the moment of like of, of the switch the flipping their head was like when they realized like we all spoke Chinese and like wait what huh uh like you speak Chinese and it's like yeah like I'm a student just like you like I'm here to learn and I know it can be frustrating for people who are experiencing that for the first time and in a lot of ways it's like reflective of like microaggressions that probably happen that happen in the U.S. and like it's sort of like it happening all the time and it can create like a sense of like frustration if I feel that like it is getting to that point with me like I will just like disengage um respectfully I tried to get too upset about it um because I know a lot, a lot of it just comes from curiosity and like you've only like you know what places have you seen people who look like me and so so that was like one and then like the other the other, the other two mostly happened like when I played basketball and like uh in, in China they're like I want him and I was like you have no idea if I'm good no idea I could be trash absolute trash and you're just picking me literally because I look like someone who plays in the NBA and now that I have a beard people are like oh like Harden 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 and I'm like not James Harden. I will break your ankles though if you if you if you're not playing good defense. Uh, but I mean at this point I just laugh at him. I mean, uh, and maybe that's just like my personal dispensation um, because I just get used to taking pictures with a lot of people. And no matter what time of the day, uh, yeah. So I think that's probably the experience. And uh, the <laughs> the the last story I'll probably tell him this is I think I was in Suzhou for a summer and at 3 a.m. on a train ride from Huangshan. I kid you not 3 a.m airport like the train station like literally empty someone comes up to me and they're like picture and i was just like, I was like yeah come on i was like come on it's 3 a.m just come on get the picture so we can just go and so it's just like i think a lot of that can be like a lot for people to take in um um when they get to a new country but it's uh at this point i, I try to take it in, in good faith and use it as an opportunity to, to, to dismantle some of those stereotypes. Thank you so much both. Um, really, really appreciate your candor. Um, your contributions are really invaluable. Um, this conversation has been very enlightening. Thank, thank you again. Appreciate your time. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.